This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Wheel of Fortune. Sally Ride. Heavy metal suicide. Foreign debts. Homeless vets. AIDS. Crack. Crack is whack. Hello again, and welcome to episode 116 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. Oh, Tom, how and why did we get to where we are today? Because Billy thinks it might have something to do with crack. Wow. Katie, we are slap-bam in the middle of the 1980s, and we know with Billy that sometimes he gives us the light stuff, he gives us the films, he gives us the movie stars, he gives us the music. Today, he's taking us to a darker chapter in American life. He certainly is, Tom. Now, uh, fortunately for me and those around me in my life, and for you listening... Uh, to this podcast. I don't have any personal experience with crack, but um, I have heard that it is quite the tempting option if you're going to go to the dark side. Uh, Of course, it's uh, addressed much in the world of hip-hop. Public Enemy uh, released Night of the Living Bass Heads in 1988. NWA did Dope Man also in 88. Uh, another 1988 number from Ice-T, I'm Your Pusher. So it seems like it was extremely prevalent. What were your experiences or awarenesses of this very comestible indulgence? Much like you, Katie, mainly through popular culture, through some of those songs you've mentioned, through some of the movies that came out of the same scene. There was what the only sort of time it ever vaguely touched my life was I remember being in a nightclub once and this bloke coming up to me who was not a great advert for crack. And he was almost messianic in his belief that I should try crack. But as I looked at him, um, his teeth were missing, his eyes were gone, his hair had gone. Um, He looked a bit like Sean Ryder in Sean Ryder's very own crack era. It was not the sort of cell that was going to work for me. Yeah, so not everyone could could pull off their enthusiasm for this indulgence. However, Whitney Houston, who was a famous devotee of the stuff, she managed to kind of hold it together, at least publicly. Do you remember she did that primetime interview with Diane Sawyer Uh, in 2002, uh, announcing that crack is whack. Crack is whack. And I really love that she said, first of all, let's get one thing straight. Crack is whack. I make too much money to ever smoke crack. Let's get that straight, okay? We don't do crack. We don't do that. Crack is whack. So I love this idea that, like, oh, if you're up there and you're a posh lady, uh, that's not your drug of choice. Wrong. It is the ultimate Whitney humblebrag, Katie. Well, I'm glad to say, Katie, that today we have a guest who is not only going to tell us about what went on in this scene at the time, but has his own personal insights. Our guest today is Ruben Castaneda. He is a former reporter for The Washington Post and the author of the book S Street Rising, Crack, Murder and Redemption in D.C., part memoir, part portrayal of a city in crisis. He is also a former crack addict. He was addicted when he was hired by The Washington Post post and put on the crime beat. Ruben, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thank you for having me. Do you know what? I'm going to cut straight to the chase and I really want to talk about the history of the crack epidemic and what it did to American cities. But I want to ask you, first of all, when you take crack, what does it feel like? The very first time I took crack cocaine was on a side street off of a major avenue in Los Angeles. It was, uh, the situation was I was out reporting for the Los Angeles Herald Examiner, which is where I worked at the time. This was in um, the fall of 1989, fall of 1988. By that time, I had read many stories about the destruction that crack cocaine was creating in Los Angeles and other communities. I'd read stories about the uh, incredible addictive nature of the drug. I drank heavily at the time. But in terms of drug use, I didn't have much of a history. I'd probably smoked marijuana two or three times. Uh, I was out trying to find someone to interview for a story about immigration. And uh, there was a young lady who was uh, standing under the awning of a uh, low-cost motel. And she caught my eye. We caught each other's eye. And she she beckoned me over. And me being... um, 
27 years old at the time and not having the greatest judgment, I thought, oh, well, maybe I would, this would be my lucky day. Maybe she's, uh, she wants to flirt. And we did flirt briefly, but within a few minutes, she asked me if, if I smoked crack. And uh, I said, I, I never tried it. And she pulled out a pipe and a, and a piece of crack cocaine. And she said, well, do you want to try it? First hit is free. And again, my, uh, my judgment was not the best. I was 27, which is old enough to know better, uh, but also young enough to, to believe I was bulletproof and indestructible. Uh, so I said, sure. And she, she loaded the pipe. She handed it to me with a, a lighter. And uh, I took a pull. And the effect was instantaneous. It was like nothing I had ever experienced before. Imagine this just all-out assault on the, the pleasure centers of your brain. Like the, 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 the greatest feeling I had ever felt from any drug or from drinking times 100,000. And it was instant. In fact, it was so intense that I actually took a step backwards and my, uh, this young lady asked me if I was okay. And I wanted to say, okay, I've never felt better. I felt like I could levitate you know, back to my uh, apartment that I didn't need a vehicle. So it, it's, it's incredibly, at the outset, it's incredibly pleasurable. And I don't think there's any other instant high that compares. So, Ruben, your book, S Street Rising, which is so gripping and so shocking and beautifully told, on the page where you talk about this encounter with this beautiful, sexy young woman, I mean, the whole thing is just loaded with erotic promise, and it delivers on the promise, but also heightened with this drug. I mean, you really sell it. I mean, I'm reading it thinking... Is this something I need to get in on? I mean, that's the problem. When you're talking about the dangers of the drug, you're also describing why it's so gosh darn irresistible. Well, initially, yes. And there's a, a saying, and, and there's truth in the saying, that you're always chasing your first high because the second time that you used, that I used that drug, uh, this young lady let me keep the pipe. She knew I would be back to purchase some more. And I took part of the rock with me, and I tried to make it last. The second time I used it, it was an incredible, incredible high again. But I, I didn't know it at the time, but it was imperceptibly lower than the first time. And as one goes on and uses more and more, one needs more to try to reach the same high. And you can never reach the same high. And eventually, I got to the point where I couldn't stop using, but I didn't even feel a high anymore. And yet I couldn't stop. It's a very self-destructive way to live. I mean, that's the important thing I think everybody needs to understand at the outset. It's all well and good for Nancy Reagan to honk out, just say no to drugs. But if you go in knowing, hey, it's diminishing returns and you're never going to capture that high. And by the way, you're also going to look like a pile of garbage by the end of it and feel that way. Maybe it's a little less appealing. Before we go further, can you explain to the newbies, what is crack? Crack uh, is simply powder cocaine that's in, in hardened form that can be smoked. I don't know all the ins and outs of the chemistry, but it's not difficult to make. You can mix powder cocaine with baking soda and, and cook it up. And it, it create rocks, uh, they call them rocks, that could be, say, the size of a baseball. And those would be cut up into units, which on the street were typically sold for $20, about the size of a small M&M, usually square-shaped. Uh, it could all, they could also sell them for $10 increments, which would be uh, half of a, a $20 unit. And why did it come about? In the first place, Ruben, why did crack cocaine suddenly appear on American streets? There are different theories on the origin. There is uh, evidence that um, elements of the CIA had worked with drug dealers to allow cocaine to be brought into the country to finance a war that was not sanctioned by Congress in Nicaragua against the, the left-wing insurgents. In terms of the reason that it took off, once drug dealers realized that this, this powder cocaine could be cooked up into rock form, it really boosted the profits because powder cocaine was for a long time seen as a, a rich man's drug, 
because of the price. You know, you had to have a certain income to be able to, to afford it. But you can sell, a- anybody can get $10 or $20. And the profit level from selling crack versus powder, it was an, an incredible boost to drug dealers. So you, you very quickly had in the early 1980s and, and beyond, very young men and even in some cases teenagers who could, in short order, become neighborhood kingpins. You didn't need a huge investment to get some powder cocaine. Once you got that, you cook it up with baking soda and you start selling it on the street and you generate huge profits. Yeah, so it has a high profit margin. I'm interested in that thing that Whitney Houston brought up that, you know, she makes too much money. She's not a basic bitch enough to be smoking crack. Um, so it seems to have an implied uh, class division between drugs, which is a, a funny idea. You know, basically, you're going to be in your cups and and on the back foot uh, ruining your life no matter how much money or how little money you pay for it. But can you talk a little bit about that, the, the perception of people, like perhaps writing off uh, people who are crack addicts because they were poor. Uh, yes, Whitney did say that, and I think she was misguided when she did because the fact of the matter is that it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in. It doesn't matter what your job title is. It doesn't matter what your income level is. The, the drug's effect is the same no matter who you are. It's incredibly addictive. And yes, you're right. There was a, a, a widespread perception for many years that the drug was primarily the drug of poor people in ghettos and in poor black and Latino neighborhoods. And, and yes, many uh, people in, in those areas were affected and became addicted. But in D.C., and I'm, I'm certain this happened in other cities too, uh, drug dealers would tell you that they would see people coming in with license plates from Virginia, from Maryland, in very high-end cars to make their purchases. These were not people from the neighborhood. These were not working-class people. This addiction could affect anybody from any walk of life. It's interesting to me, Ruben, as well, the economic background, when we talk about the fact that crack was very cheap and people could make quick profits, because this is obviously a time where Reaganomics, which, Katie, we've talked about in previous episodes, have left their own mark across American cities, and there is a great deal of unemployment. There is poverty in places where previously there was none. Yeah, you're right. This was happening at the same time uh, that the the Reaganomics, which is basically the trickle-down theory, that if you give tax cuts to the wealthy, the benefits will trickle down to everybody else, which, of course, turned out not to be true. I don't know that anybody actually still believes that. Yeah, the economics were interesting because a lot of young men in these neighborhoods didn't have a lot of options in the economy of the 80s to make a decent livable wage um, for many, especially if they had any kind of criminal record. A black or Latino man with a record would have a very difficult time finding gainful employment. So for some individuals in some of these neighborhoods, selling crack was simply an economic decision, and one could say a rational one, but this had long-lasting negative effects because in the long run, eventually, you you don't see many drug dealers still operating into their 40s, 50s, or going legit and retiring. Many of these young men ended up locked up or dead or maimed in drug wars, and that had a this ancillary effect of hollowing out many of these distressed neighborhoods where you have a lot of the young men just gone. And that leaves a lot of young women, uh, often single mothers, to try to fend for themselves as best they can. So that, that that had the effect, in addition to the violence, this wave or firestorm of crack addiction had a terrible economic effects ultimately in a lot of these neighborhoods. Ruben, talk about the dissonance of doing your job as a reporter and dating while being an addict. How the heck did you hide it? It was exhausting. I tried to compartmentalize my life as best I could because uh, I started using crack in Los Angeles and my usage increased as time went on. About a year after I took my first hit, I was hired to work for the Washington Post as a crime reporter, of all things, in the city that was 
at the time known as the murder capital of the country because of crack-related violence. I drove cross-country to D.C., and I did have the intention of stopping because I understood how awful it would look if a Washington Post crime reporter was picked up by the police holding or buying crack cocaine. I thought that would be a national story, the end of my career, I could go on. So at some point on my cross-country drive, I think maybe in Arizona, I took a final hit of crack, I thought, and I, I ditched my crack pipe, just threw it in the trash, and I went on. I arrived in D.C. in September of 1989, and my intentions lasted less than a week because it wasn't long before I met this young lady who called herself Champagne on a street corner near where I lived, near downtown DC. And I just, I just had this intuition when we looked at each other, I just felt like here is someone who has this in common with me. And I beckoned, she beckoned me, I let her into my car and she quickly asked uh, if I liked to party, and it turned out she knew exactly where to buy crack cocaine, and off we went. So she was the uh, exact wrong person in the wrong place for you, but of course you probably at the time thought, bingo, I'm sorted. Uh, yeah, it seemed at the time like, oh, this is great. She's a, a neighborhood girl. She's what was known on the street as a strawberry, somebody who would exchange crack cocaine for sexual favors. So that was um, the transactional relationship we struck up that I would give her the money to purchase the crack and we would smoke it together and, and, and have sex together. Um, the way it worked was uh, she directed me to S Street, which was just a few blocks away, and I'd hand her the money, she'd get out of the car, and in broad daylight, on a you know, sunny September day, there were drug dealers lounging on either side of the street She'd get out, they all knew her, and they would all rush to her and surround her like an American football huddle. And she took her time. She would, no, nobody was worried about police. Nobody was worried that they were conducting this illegal transaction in plain sight. And she took her time. She saw what everybody had to offer, made her decision, handed the money over the money. She got the crack, and then she came back into my car. Well, it sounds like an entirely compelling, mutually beneficial relationship with Champagne. And I'm wondering, wasn't it obvious to your colleagues at the Washington Post or the, any women you happen to be dating that you were high? How did you disguise that? Well, initially, I was, I think, somewhat successful in compartmentalizing that part of my life. Uh, a, a former girlfriend in Los Angeles, somebody I dated in the months right before I moved to DC, uh, she told me a couple years after um, I'd gotten clean that she never suspected. She knew I drank, we drank together, but she never suspected that I was using crack or any other drugs. The women I was dating in DC at the time, I don't think they had any idea either because I did everything I could to keep those two parts of my life separate. Initially, I would only use crack cocaine on days off or on weekends. I wouldn't do it on a day that I had to be at work. I wouldn't do it on a day that I was going, you know, on a date with somebody. So I tried as hard as I could to compartmentalize. Of course, over time, as I used more, those walls started to crumble. I can't help but think, Ruben, um, as, a, as a former journalist myself, as a former writer, that it was somewhat unfortunate you were on the crime beat. I mean, I'm sure the addiction would still have been as difficult to shake had you been the theatre critic of the Washington Post. But when you are on the crime beat, you, there must have been occasions where you would have been in a reporting situation around people who knew your secret. Yes, that was part of what was really exhausting because I ended up having to go to crime scenes where I had made buys or Champagne had made buys just a few months after I started my job there, there was a shooting on S Street on that blo the same block. And I went because it was late, late on a Saturday night shift. In fact, it was already early Sunday morning. And I checked out a car and went just because I had an intuition that this could be something more than just, you know, one person shot. And it turned out it was a massacre inside a tavern on the corner of the street it ended up with four people dead and uh, 
a few others wounded. And yes, as I got out of my car and started to talk to police, I was looking over my shoulder wondering, are any of the drug dealers who Champagne has made buys from here, do they recognize me? Because I've been on the block many times. If they do recognize me, will they somehow figure out a way to use that against me? It was a low-level paranoia. It was certainly a reasonable paranoia, I would have thought, Ruben. I'm wondering if, in a weird way, did your addiction to crack make you a a better reporter because you had better insights and sources on the street in your reporting of uh, local crime? Well, I think there's two sides to that. I, I, I felt very comfortable going into certain neighborhoods that other reporters may not have. I didn't feel afraid. I didn't feel like... I couldn't try to talk to anybody because they might be threatening. I would always try. And in that regard, I thought that that is what makes a good street reporter part of it. But as time went on and my usage spiraled out of control, my behavior became much more unpredictable. And over time, in the last few months of my usage before a boss took me to rehab, I was starting to miss shifts, miss part of shifts, call in sick because I was on a binge. So you just become eventually not able to function very well. What does what does the withdrawal feel like, Ruben, when you are trying to escape it and you can't? I've read about the horrible effects of withdrawal that people who use opioids like heroin go through. Just terrible, terrible physical symptoms that they have to get through, chills, fever, nausea, diarrhea, all of that. My withdrawal occurred over Christmas 1991. My boss at the time drove me to rehab four days before Christmas. Some of my coworkers had noticed that I was behaving erratically, and one particular coworker who had had uh, someone in her family who struggled with addiction, she came forward and my bosses took me aside and asked me what was going on, not in a confrontational or adversarial way, but in a way that they said they wanted to help me. So I eventually admitted I was having trouble with cocaine. I didn't at the time say it was crack. I thought that would look really bad, but they knew that I was in trouble. So for a few weeks, I went to a counselor that wasn't working. I missed a shift in late December, and the next day when I came into work, my boss said, well, we've made arrangements for you to go to rehab, and he took me. The first few days there, I remembered my head starting to clear. I felt like my body temperature, one thing about crack cocaine is it boosts your body temperature. Like There was a reason that I was sweating when I was using crack, and I noticed that my body temperature seemed to start to get to where it should have been normally. I've never tried uh, one of these popular cleanse diets, but I had a feeling over those few days that my body was, was cleansing itself of these just toxic materials that should never have been there. I did not have any of the terrible symptoms that people on heroin have to go through. So as these things go, it was not an awful withdrawal at that point, it's mostly psychological, really. The idea that I could stop and stay stopped when I first got into rehab, it it, it seemed impossible. It seemed like, okay, I understand why I'm here, but I really didn't have a a great deal of faith then that this would work. And did it take when you were in rehab? Were you able to stay off or did you relapse? I was discharged uh, from uh, rehab on January 10th, 1992. It's a date that uh, is burned into my memory. A colleague from the Post who was also uh, in recovery, he picked me up. First thing he did was he took me to a support group meeting, which was uh, one of the main things that we did in rehab. Every day we went to one, and that was what they they wanted us to um, inculcate. They wanted us to take that with us when we went out into the world because rehab was a very safe environment. Um, I mean, yes, you could if you wanted to maybe drink 
mouthwash if it had a little bit of alcohol or try to get somebody, to, a visitor to smuggle something to you. And I'm sure that sort of thing happened time to time. I, I, I felt very safe. I felt like, okay, I know I'm not going to use while I'm here. That was three weeks. Then I go out into the world. And for 77, 78 days, I was very good. I was in fact on something that's called a pink high, a pink cloud, which is a low level high when you give up drugs and your brain starts to come back. It really is a low level buzz. I was feeling really good. Around day 77 or 78 on a night when I was walking back from a a work shift, um, I had two or three strawberries that I would uh, had these transactional experiences with. Another one, not champagne, but this, this very, very attractive young, younger woman. She saw me, we saw each other, we started talking. She said she had a, a rock on her. And just like that, it was like my brain flipped off and I said, oh, let's go do it. And we went into my apartment. We shared the rock. They tell you in rehab that even though you've stopped, your disease is growing that it's doing push-ups, that it's weightlifting, it's getting stronger. And I realized then, before I even exhaled, I realized I was in big trouble because now it felt like this addiction, this disease was a a, a 20-foot tall monster with rippling muscles and it wanted me to use more. I just wanted more. I would do anything to get my hands on more. So I went out with this young lady and we went to the usual places, S Street, another place nearby on First Street to buy. And for some reason, which I think is a minor miracle, because this was early part of 1992, crack was still very prevalent in DC. For some reason, nobody had anything to sell. And I went back, I had a, a sleepless night. And um, the, the next morning, I was wandering around my neighborhood, not sure of what I do, except that I thought, if I see somebody who's selling crack, I'll buy it. And there was this woman, uh, the neighborhood heroin user named Roxanne. She was always friendly, always, you know, we chatted. It was clear that she used heroin because in, in the summer you could see the track marks on her arms and even on her feet. She saw that I was in distress and she asked me what was wrong. And I sat down and for some reason I just blurted out everything that I'd been to rehab and I was doing well and I'd stopped and now I didn't know what to do. And she could have easily suggested, oh, let's go get some. But instead, she told me what I needed to do was just go back to a support group meeting, raise my hand, tell people what had happened, and start over again. And I knew she was telling the truth because she said she had tried it herself. She'd tried going clean herself. And that's what I did. I started over. Tom, you have piqued my interest with that very curious pretzel shape you seem to have contorted yourself into. Can you tell me more? Ah, Katie, thank you for, ah, there we go, recognising my Pilates skills. It's all thanks to Target Pilates, today's sponsor. Oh, well, you know what? I am a huge fan of Pilates because I have been twisting myself into pretzel shapes and straightening myself out from them for upwards of 30 years because... I don't know if you knew this, Tom. I am bionic. I actually have (laughs) strange robotic body parts inserted inside of me. And that is why I need to iron myself out with physical therapy. So please tell me more about Target Pilates. Well, Katie, Target Pilates is a virtual Pilates studio that's for everybody at any level, even beginners like me. And it's great for all my aches and pains. Katie, I think you know this. But Pilates is medically proven to improve symptoms of lower back pain. So whether you've never tried Pilates before, want to move more and improve the way your body feels, or you want to step out of your comfort zone, there is a huge selection of resources to choose from with an ever-growing library of over 200 easy-to-follow online Pilates videos. Katie, these videos include, but are not limited to, Mm. quick 10-minute classes. Get in, get out. 30-minute classes with separate, easy, moderate and hard options. Going on all the rides. And Katie, a weekly 60-minute session. That's for people who like a commitment. One more thing, Katie. It is a lot more affordable than a lot of in-person studios at just £4.99 a month. And exclusively for our listeners, you can get three months for just £12. 
So, if you'd like to try out Target Pilates, head to targetpilates.online forward slash fire. That's targetpilates.online forward slash F-I-R-E and you'll get three months for only £12. It's the extraordinary story to hear this, Ruben. And Casey, I'm sure you're the same. I've got so many thoughts and questions popping into my head. Uh, One of them, Ruben, is... So you're in an almost unique position in that you are at this stage a crack addict, but you're also as aware of anyone else of the effects of crack on American cities, on neighbourhoods, because you can see the effects. So how did you navigate that strangest of moral mazes of being a user who was contributing to the problem, yet also palpably aware of all the issues that crack was causing in the city where you lived? That's a great question. At, at the time that I was using, I was also drinking heavily, drinking because that is a progressive disease as well. I compartmentalized that in my mind too. I did not allow myself to make the connection between the buys I was making on the street or having champagne make on the street with the destruction that, that it led to, the violence that it led to. I simply compartmentalized that and kept it out of my mind. It was only after I had been uh, sober for a while, for a few years, and, and my, I think my faculties started to return in greater significance that I started to reflect on how I had been part of the problem. I wasn't just writing about it. I was contributing to it. I did not want anybody to get shot or hurt, but by virtue of helping prop up this drug economy by making buys, I was part of the problem. And that was something that I had to come to terms with. Ruben, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about staking out the Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, uh, who was uh, suspected to be quite a crack enthusiast while you yourself were high on crack. What was that like? Uh, are you talking about the, the night he was arrested? Yeah. Right. So in January of 1990, uh, D.C. police and FBI agents arrested Marion Barry in a, a downtown hotel room just a block from the post offices. Uh, they filmed him with uh, a, a sometime girlfriend uh, smoking crack cocaine. It was a setup. There had been suspicion in the city for months, if not longer, that Barry had been using crack cocaine. In fact, the Post had even done stories here and there about those suspicions. But no one had ever charged him. He'd always denied it. And here you had the mayor of a city that's being torn apart by crack violence, who is, the, by virtue of his office, the leader of the police department, using crack cocaine. I happened to be driving by the hotel when I saw a police white shirt a high-ranking official, who wear, they wear white shirts, the officers wear blue, race, sprint into the hotel. And then I saw a TV reporter and a cameraman run in also. Well, being a seasoned reporter, I thought, well, I should check this out. So I parked my car and I went inside and uh, the TV reporter who had been a former Post reporter, uh, he had this thousand-yard stare when I asked him what happened. He said, oh, I think Barry's been arrested for using crack cocaine. So I called my editors from a payphone and asked them what I should do. They said, uh, get a room, try to report what you can. Uh, So I did. I got a room. I tried reporting, but I didn't get very far. The floor where this operation took place was on lockdown. Nobody was getting onto that floor. I tried to interview hotel staff, but, you know, unless you were there, nobody knew anything. I got room service. I ordered a couple of um, stiff drinks. I think they were gin and tonics. And I just watched the coverage on TV. And it was all the stations, all the local stations were just covering this incredible, shocking arrest. And then as the night wore on and I, I, I got more drunk, I got this idea that, well, I've got this room. I've got Champagne's pager number. I called her, paged her. She, she called me back. I asked her if she'd want to come up if she was holding. And she yes, she had crack. So she came up, and by that time, I think the police and FBI had mostly left. But bear in mind, you know, th- this had been a major crime scene just uh, an hour or two before. So I had her come up, and you know, we used crack 
and uh, partied there in my room in the same hotel. And, and the irony must have not escaped you. Were, were you sort of enjoying that or did you not even think of it because you were so compartmentalizingly successful? I, I was still in compartmentalization mode. Eventually, I, I, I started to uh, reflect on how long would I have lasted if I had been under the same kind of scrutiny that someone like Barry was. When the time, Ruben, came for you to admit publicly what you had done how did it play out because you clearly had connections with policemen and high-ranking police officers from your day job there there must have been an enormous impact pretty much immediately well what happened was that um one day on a slow afternoon we didn't have an immediate deadline i i I had a, a talk with a an assistant editor at the post we were talking about our respective lives and the ups and downs and I felt comfortable with her, and I, I disclosed to her that I had, had used crack and I, I'd stopped. And she got this look in her eyes, and she said, that's a great story. And she put it into my head that I should write about this. So I was going to write a story publicly disclosing in the post that I had used crack cocaine while on the police beat. And it was um, published, uh, I think it was January of 2007, and most of the response was positive. Some people were shocked because, uh, you know, they only knew me in the context of this uh, quiet, introverted reporter who covered the courthouse. But I also got a few uh, responses from uh, book agents who said, well, this could be a great book. And and that was how the beginning of S Street Rising. I'm wondering about the unintended consequences of the crack explosion in the 80s. Do you think that the war on drugs led to the militarization of the U.S. police? Oh, I think there were many, many unintended negative consequences uh, of the war on drugs, certainly mass incarceration. And many of these were in black and Latino people who were locked up for nonviolent drug offenses. And if it's a federal offense, that often meant really long amounts of time for relatively minor amounts of crack cocaine relative to powder cocaine because Congress had created stiffer penalties for crack as opposed to powder. So that disproportionately affected people in poor Latino and black neighborhoods. So you had this huge amount of um, people being incarcerated. And yes, the militarization of police began in earnest and accelerated as police started to receive actual military equipment that the U.S armed forces were no longer using under the justification that, well, they, they, they needed this gear because of, of the drug war that they were fighting. I'm wondering if crack is just an American thing or have we successfully exported it? That is a great question. I've not seen any solid reporting that crack exploded in other countries to the extent that it did in the United States. Now, now certainly you could find crack users probably in every country, but in terms of the level of usage and the violence that came with it, I can't think of any country that um, for any sustained amount of time comes close to the US. We're number one. You could say that. (laughs) Are we still seeing, Ruben, are we still seeing the effects of the crack cocaine epidemic in American cities? Or is it something that peaked in that period that you've been talking about so eloquently in the late 1980s and the early 1990s? Well, in terms of the effects that we saw in the late 80s through the, I'd say the mid to late 90s, you don't see that anymore. You don't see the open drug dealing on the street. You don't have the same levels of violence that was largely fueled by drug crews or gangs fighting over turf and eventually just fighting because they were fighting. So in terms of that, that's not happening anymore. But I think the long lasting effects are there in terms of the economics and the social costs that were associated with the war on drugs. There are neighborhoods where you've had, um, by now, maybe two or three generations uh, who've grown up with a large percentage of people who were young men or teenagers in the 80s to the mid-90s were gone because they were incarcerated. 
you know, some are, 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 have come back, are starting to come back, and they're now middle-aged men. And the world has changed so dramatically from that time. And so have many of the neighborhoods here in D.C. Some of these neighborhoods that were crack combat zones during that time and were populated almost 100% by um, black people have become gentrified. And now you see young white people living in these neighborhoods, buying houses or moving into newer apartment complexes or condo buildings. Uh, uh, yoga studios have popped up in, so, in some of these neighborhoods, uh, which would have been unthinkable back then. Would that have gent- gentrification have occurred regardless of all these young men and teenagers being sent away for years? Hard to say, hard for me to say. I, I do think that it's likely that it, it, it accelerated because you had a, a number of healthy worth, working age people who were just simply, you know, taken out of these neighborhoods to be incarcerated. And not all of them were incarcerated for violent offenses. This is a goofy question, Ruben, but as I was reading your book, and you mentioned these various ladies who engage in transactional uh, sex for drugs moments, intimate moments with you, um, they're always lovely. Uh, They sound luscious. They sound like they're easy on the eye. How do they maintain their hot looks while being crack addicts? Because I don't think the two are compatible. Well, my window of using was not long. There are people who can drink for decades and wreck their lives and, and, and their health and, and that of other people. People who, uh, uh, if you don't overdose, you can use heroin and opioids for years and years. I don't know that you can use crack cocaine for many years, at least not the way I was doing it, before you end up dead or incarcerated. So I stopped using in 1990, early 1992. I don't know what happened to these uh women. I don't. like. I stopped seeing them. I stopped looking for them, and I stopped seeing them on the street. At one point, I ran into someone who I'd seen in the neighborhood who I knew was friends with Champagne and asked her, whatever happened to her? And she seemed to think that she had moved to Arizona. Um, Champagne was very petite, and yet she seemed to have this amazing capacity to consume huge amounts of crack. Whether and how that caught up with her, I couldn't say. But Yes, it's a very self-destructive way to live. And I think that we came to know each other and have these transactional relationships at a point in time before we were in the self, at the end part of the self-destructive phase. Okay, Ruben. So you had that initial period in rehab um, post-Christmas. You then felt like you'd got through the other side. You relapsed and then you went to the support group after bumping into the heroin addict Roxanne on the street. What was the point where you finally escaped the clutches of crack cocaine? Certainly, Roxanne uh, was highly instrumental in um, my being able to stop for good because she could have nudged me in the other direction and I would have happily gone along and bought more. And who knows, I think at that point, I would have ended up either locked up, dead, uh, locked up or dead, maybe if I'm lucky in the hospital. Once I turned myself in, so to speak, and raised my hand at a support group meeting and, and disclosed that I had relapsed, at that moment in the meeting, it was very silent. People were, some people were looking down at their shoes. It was a, a somber moment. I think people were fl- reflecting on how this could be them, because this is a serious, deadly disease. As time went on, within a few weeks, I, I, I came to understand that there's this bright, neon line. Some people can stop using crack or another substance, say alcohol, and then use again and then stop again. I came to understand that there's this bright neon line for me. On one side, it's if I don't use, I live. If I use again, chances are I won't live. It was really just a realization that this is life and death for me. It's not like I have another recovery in me. I don't think I did because I think if I used again, my addiction was so strong that nothing would have stopped me. Nothing would have gotten between me and however much crack I could get my hands on. 
Ruben Castaneda, your book, S Street Rising, Crack, Murder, and Redemption in D.C., is such a gripping and informative read. And thank God you and it had a happy ending. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about your experience and putting us in the picture of this deadly addiction. Thank you, Ruben. That was fantastic. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Oh my gosh, what a powerful testimony. I mean, one of the things that works for us um, and why we're able to get someone like Ruben on board is we're just moving up closer to the present day. So once we hit the 80s, you have people who have experienced these events firsthand. So thank goodness Ruben made it through to the other side. But it's a funny thing, though, because um, because crack and drug use is so interwoven with pop culture, whether it's, you know, movies like Scarface or it's in hip hop songs, there's sort of a dark glamour to it. And I'm wondering if uh, you think that you know, unfortunately, it does have kind of a like when you were a kid growing up listening to hip hop, did you think, oh, crack is kind of uh, tough and cool? I don't think I did. And I've got, I've got to be honest, Katie, although I found Ruben's description at times intoxicating, there is absolutely nothing in his overall experience that makes me want to try it. I've got to be no. honest, at this point in my life, it's not going to be something <laughs> high on any holiday list. Um, high on, <laughs> on your bucket list. On my bucket list. It's not going to be a New Year's Day resolution. Um, if I were to find myself, it's unlikely because of the uh, really leafy area that I live in. If I were to find myself um, offered some, <laughs> a rock by the local equivalent of champagne, 
I think I'd probably say no. Wow, you and Nancy Reagan just <laughs> say no. So what do we have to look forward to next week? Katie, it's a strange one for me because I've been seeing his name get closer and closer in the lyrics over the past few months. And I have absolutely no idea still who the hell Bernie Getz is. Well, I can tell you in my limited knowledge, he's a citizen vigilante who took justice into his own hands and I think probably was a harbinger of the disgusting situation we have in America now, which is kind of a steroid stand your ground where people are just waving guns around willy nilly and deciding that they're going to end people's life because they don't like the way they were looked at. Okay, thank you, Katie, for filling me in. One last thing before we go. If today's dark stories have piqued your interest, let me direct you towards another crowd network podcast. This is the Joe Marler Show, which is me and Joe. And we had a guest a little while ago called Sean Atwood, who was a former drug trafficker. The same mix, Katie, of darkness, of allure and ultimately tragedy. Tom, you've got me and the listeners on Tenterhooks. We'll see you next time. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.